Hey everybody, today's show with Sean Guillory, wherein we discuss the legacy of the Russian Revolution will be forthcoming. But before we get there, just a quick funding pitch. As you all know, these episodes are brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. We could not do this without you. So we urge you, if you listen to the Dead Pundit Society on a weekly or monthly basis and you like what we do and you want to keep us up and running and expanding into the new year and beyond, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button for $5 or more per month and you'll get access to our entire back catalog of B-sides and subscriber-only content, which is now raining down on our patrons on a weekly basis. Additionally, we've expanded our funding pitch to ask our listeners to donate one hour's worth of their wage per month to our operations in order to keep us up and running and thriving and expanding. We have a lot of work ahead of us heading into 2020. There's a looming fascist threat across the globe, and we need a principled socialist politics in order to face that down. And I think Dead Punnett Society is on the cutting edge of contributing to that project. So... I'd like to thank all of our generous patrons out there who have taken us up on this offer. They've donated one hour's worth of their wage to our project. Oh, it's very flattering. It's humbling. And um, I'm, I'm very pleased to know that we're reaching people out there in the United States and abroad. So let's keep this thing up and running. Appreciate the support. Head over to patreon.com slash Pundits and smash that subscribe button. All right. On with the show. I think we can. I think we can. Bleh, bleh, bleh. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm multitasking here. Let me focus. Six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother! Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Dead Punnett Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me today is yet another member of the podcast host, Brethren. Last week, we had on Matt Bruenig, and uh, today we've got on another one of our own. He runs Sean's Russia blog podcast. He works at the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, I'm sad to say he has a much better radio voice than I do. Sean Guillory, <laughs> thanks for joining us on Dead Pundits. Yes, thanks for having me, Adam. It's long overdue. Uh, it's, it is long overdue. We've both been admiring each other's podcasts from afar for quite some yeah. time. You've been going at it much longer than I have. For people who have not heard of your podcast, give them a quick little rundown of what you do. There, It's a kind of a niche audience. Yeah. But uh, for someone who's not really initiated in that realm of, uh, you know, academia or even like historical or personal interest, I find it very accessible. So I think Thanks. a lot of my listeners will too. So give us a quick spiel on, on your podcast, how it came about and what kind of topics you cover. So basically the idea is, you know, I have a lot of friends uh, as an ex-academic of sorts. I have a lot of friends who've spent a lot of time sitting in archives, graduate school, writing books about various topics of Russian history and Eurasia more broadly. And, you know, as we know, in, in academia, you know, you, you put a lot of blood and treasure or time away from family into writing these books, and nobody reads them. Um, <laughs> and, and so the idea, the idea of the podcast is essentially, um, you know, after doing a blog on Russia for over 10 years, I realized that there's actually an audience out there who, who is interested in the region, interested in the history, but just doesn't have access to a lot of the great knowledge that's being produced by a lot of, you know, my friends and other people in, in, in Russian and Eurasian studies. So the idea is, is to try to, um, 
bring the history and politics and culture of Eurasia to a broader audience. And, and you know, I didn't anticipate this, but now with all of the, the Russia Gate stuff, I think it's become even more important to get people to realize that Russia is a very complicated, complex place that I think a lot of our uh, media does a, a real disservice to. So, you know, this my the mission is essentially to to bring this, you know, great work that people are working on in academia and scholarship, but also journalists and policymakers as well mm-hmm. to a more to give a, a broader audience access to that knowledge. So that's that's essentially the mission. And and I try to keep the topics incredibly eclectic too as well. Now, you must be very disappointed that the incoming Democratic Party leadership has announced that they will not uh, be making the Russia investigation uh, sort of high on their list of priorities. Uh, that must be very bad for business for you, I would, I would think. <laughs> well, you know, that it's, I have mixed it, – it, it might be. We'll see. I, I have mixed feelings about this anyways because since Russia has become such a, a very – public thing to be discussed mostly in the media. I don't I don't think many Americans actually really care, but at least in the punditry and the media and and intel, kind of intelligentsia, American intelligentsia circles. Um there's been a market for a variety of of entrepreneurs and uh insta insta pundits on Russia. <laughs> um and and it's interesting because over the last couple of years, especially since I think the, the annexation of Crimea and the war in the Donbass, um, there's, I've seen people, certain people's stars rise and certain people's mm. stars fall or at least plateau, uh, depending on where they stand uh, on these various issues of Ukraine and Crimea and, and Russia and info war and hybrid yeah. war, whatever, whatever. So the, I actually and, and a lot of the people I know who are serious scholars and, and pay really close attention to the region. I think we'll be all quite satisfied once this blows over and a lot of these entrepreneurs go away mm-hmm. and move on to the next thing. That's right. I think, you know, a lot of these contentious issues in foreign affairs uh, crop up. And, you know, I think principled leftists can take a lot of uh, positions on those things, you know, uh, very justifiably. We can have good principled debates in a lot of directions, you know, whether it's Syria or Crimea or Russia or, right. or what have you. But but one thing is certain that – uh that, uh, you know, the people who are getting in there while the getting is good uh, are grifters. And yeah. uh, we, we need people like you to, to, to set the record straight and provide you know, some kind of uh, historical, political, policy-oriented groundedness to all of the silliness that, uh, that yeah. proliferates when it comes to these types of things. So uh, you're doing a hell of a service. I, <laughs> I, I salute. I give you a good Russian salute. Wait. Thank I, you. Ah, Thank you. You, you might be you might be now a, a, an agent of Putin. Who we knows? just we just gave ourselves up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, aside from wanting to have you on the show just to chat about your podcast, uh, it's got a lot of really great topics. You know, you talk not only about politics and history and Russian Revolution, pre-revolution, pre-revolutionary Russia. Uh, you talk quite a bit about Russian literature and culture. Really fascinating stuff. And you're, you know, not just Russia proper, but also just Eastern Europe and Eurasia. Yeah, uh, Yeah, and Central Asia. uh, A lot of topics. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot out there. People should check it out. Support support your uh, podcast. Uh, We all need support from everybody. Um, Keep this ecosystem alive and thriving. But uh, the other reason I wanted to bring you on today is because we are just passing through the 101st anniversary of the October Revolution. Now, Seems like we're a little late. Seems like we're a little <laughs> late to the ball game because we're well into November. But set the record straight. 
Is it the October or the early November revolution? Uh, explain this to our listeners. I was actually not entirely informed about this little nuance until oh. I read China Mievel's October, and he opens mm-hmm. his uh, he opens his book explaining this uh, the calendar differences. There. Yeah, is it the October yeah. revolution or the November revolution? What is your take well, on that? Well, it depends. It depends on which calendar you're using. The old Russian calendar was two weeks behind the Western calendar, the the Orthodox Russian Orthodox calendar. So so, and the Bolsheviks and and the Soviet Union, you know, called it the October Revolution. So right. I don't see I don't see the point of of changing it to November, even though the date of celebration for the October Revolution was on November seventh. Once they switched the calendar, but um, the they continued to call it that. So I, I'm fine with that. I don't I don't see why everybody knows it as the you know the Great October Revolution in Soviet ease. So you know, might as well just keep it that way. Don't get people con- more confused than they already are. <laughs> there, there are enough, uh, you know, plays on words when it comes to November. You know, you've got you've got yeah. Movember for the yes. fellas out there who like to grow <laughs> out their mustache. Right. Uh, you've got others that we won't talk about on the podcast because we're trying to keep it proper today. <laughs> uh, but you all know what I'm saying. Uh, anyway, I thought the 101st anniversary of the very much October Revolution was an opportune time to reflect on the reflection, if you will, to get a little meta about how we commemorate and romanticize and uh, how we perhaps even in some cases produce you know, caricatures in that process and how memory uh, excludes and recreates and reorganizes history in certain types of ways. And, you know, no, no better of a guy to come on to talk about that than a, <laughs> than a proper, proper fucking historian. Am I right? So give me your take on the commemoration of the commemoration. Now that we're one year on from the Russian Revolution, how do you assess that commemoration, that moment? Uh, it's a, it was a, a proliferation of articles, you know, on all sides mm-hmm. of the aisle, right, yeah. center, left, far left, there were a lot of debates on the far left about about the legacy and what we should take away, what we shouldn't take away. I had on a Donner Usmani, uh, and we talked uh, in a very non-historical way, and I expect you to disabuse us of the way that we uh, misappropriated the Russian Revolution for <laughs> contemporary events. What right. is the historical legacy of the Russian Revolution that, uh, that we should truly uphold, and what's your take on that? Because I think you have a lot of interesting things to say here. Well, I mean, first, I, I have to say I, I was pleased that it actually was commemorated, and it was commemorated in in uh, in terms of it being a defining moment of the 20th century. And I don't think you can get away from that. Um, I, it, it was interesting, and this is something that um, I found a little frustrating with all of the commemoration. It was interesting that one of the f- places where it wasn't commemorated much, at least officially, it was unofficially commemorated in many ways, but in Russia, the Russian state... Huh. Uh, basically was silent on uh, not not only the February Revolution, but also on the October Revolution. And I think one of the, the, the things about that was frustrating about the discourse of the commemoration itself here in the West, and speaking of the West more you know broadly, is that it had very few Russian voices in terms of having Russians comment on the legacy of this event for their country. And I think, too, just the the fact that, at least on an official level, the state was silent on this commemoration. 
And, and, and because the Russians were doing all sorts of things in academia, there were all sorts of conferences, there were local celebrations, of course, the Russian Communist Party was doing stuff. And so it, and this is an interesting contrast and to something I think we'll talk about in a bit. And that is the 100th anniversary of the Young Communist League, the Komsomol was on October 29th. And there were official celebrations of the 100th anniversary of the Komsomol in the sense that there was actually a concert and performance in the Kremlin. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a very, very uh, how the the Putin regime uh, picks and chooses its history is an interesting question. But one of the things I, you know, like I said, I was happy that it was commemorated um, outside of Russia and recognized as a defining moment. Um, But what frustrated me with that commemoration is that despite the the numbers of books and histories that have been written in the last 30 years, and particularly since the collapse of communism, that really gave us access to a lot of the materials of the voices of regular people and how they experienced this event, that was mostly absent in the commemoration. It was, it was ba- on left and right, it seemed to me, overwhelmingly about the great men of history, the great ideas, political parties, you know, Lenin, Trotsky, blah, blah, blah. And really, I think, um, putting aside or at least silencing uh, what I think is if there is one major legacy that we should commemorate, and that is the voices of millions of people who became activated uh, in this revolution in 1917 and, and aspired to, you know, turn their society into something more. Um, and I think that that really is something that I think can give us inspiration for today, regardless of its outcome. Right. It was as if the social history revolution or that history yeah. from below the popular history revolution that has been sort of overtaking the historical discipline, uh, the discipline of history uh, for the past uh, couple of decades never happened. Right. As yes. if we were just sort of reverting back to the great man theories and the way that we sort of uh, throw around these ideological battles that that happen sort of on the, the top shelf of of society, um, you know, behind the backs of the masses. Mm-hmm. Um, I, can, I can understand as a historian, that would be that would be very frustrating. Well, it's under, it's frustrating as a historian, but it's also frustrating as, you know, someone who considers himself on the left, um, because, you know, we uh, as as good leftists like to imagine ourselves as representing or speaking for, or at least allowing for space for the the voices of the lower classes or the subaltern or however you want to define it, right? I mean, this is part of our whole political movement. And here you, with the Russian Revolution, you have one of these, you know, unique moments in history where the voices of those people are loud and clear. The self-organization, the self-mobilization, the dreaming, the 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 inspiration that, you know, lower class people, workers and peasants and, and everything in between, um, you know, the revolution activated uh, seem to have been, you know, they, they kind of if they were present in this commemoration, they were kind of like a Greek chorus. You know, they were off to the side to thinking about, say, the Bolsheviks and Lenin. And, and, you know, the other big figures. So I felt that that was a real, a real missed opportunity. I mean, there are, there were exceptions, of course. Um, but by and large, I, I felt that, you know, that, that focus was mostly kind of, it wasn't there. Right. So it seems that when the masses were accounted for, when their stories were told, uh, they were there to sort of set the stage and provide a little color and a little context for the activities of the big men of history. 
Right. Be it Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, uh, you know, Kerensky, uh, whomever uh, be the case. Uh, so, so, so then, you know, this is a big, big question, but you're the guy to ask. You've been doing this podcast for years now. And uh, I like to ask big questions on this show because I bring on people who, uh, you know, who, who've got the chops for it. So how do we approach uh, 1917, the October Revolution? How would you like to see not only ac- academics, but also leftists view this moment? What are some of the key, uh, what are some of the key fallacies, pitfalls, traps that people tend to fall into when they retell the story? You know, I'll, I'll start it this way. Before the 1980s and before the 1990s, most certainly, this was excusable to to not uh, focus on or illuminate the the voices of of lower class people in Russia uh, and the Russian Empire as a whole. Um, but now there's been so much translated into English that it's really accessible to uh, to read this stuff and, and think about it. And I think one of the things that if I would suggest one way of, of kind of approaching that period, you know, the entire just take the entire year of 1917, but also even the years before it, really looking at the hope, the fear, and the level of anger of lower class people in these months, the levels of sheer violence uh, along with the levels of of like you know hopes for democracy, the expression of of citizenship, the expressions of feeling, of freedom, excuse me, that that went along with the collapse of the, the Tsarist regime, but also the levels of vengeance that and that went along with those, and in some ways even braided together to really give a full picture. I think one of the problems with romanticizing 1917 is that we forget or we don't see or think about how, you know, really this is a society that collapsed. This is a society that the, the, what, all of the things we take for granted in terms of daily social order evaporated. There's a wonderful new book out uh, from the last year by uh, Toshi Hasegawa that's looking at popular justice and crime in 1917, where you have, you know, People taking justice in their own hands. You have, you know, what's called in Russia, samosud, or people's courts, where they're doing lynchings of criminals. You have instances where peasants are burning down their landlord's manors and, and, and you know, burning them alive. You know, these are expressions of a political and social and historical moment uh, where the revolution allows for the unlocking of all of this pent up frustration and energy and desire that I think for those of us who who think about change, political change, radical change, or revolutionary change, I think we have to look back at these historical moments and really take account of them so we understand the dynamics are completely out of any like politicians or theorists control. Uh, the other thing I would add too, one of the, the things that's not mostly talked about around 1917 is that it was a series of overlapping revolutions, right? We, we tend to focus on the cities and workers, but it's a, it's a revolution in the countryside by and large. It's peasants taking land, it's soldiers mutinying, but it's also a nationalist revolution. You have uh, Russian, Russia is, you know, the Russian empire is a multi-ethnic, multi-confessional society. And here you have the aspirations of, you know, Armenians, Georgians, Ukrainians, 
and other ethnic groups um, really trying to establish themselves as nations. And I think that nationalist aspect of 1917 is something that, I mean, thankfully, historians are pointing to it more, but it's something that the Bolsheviks really had to contend with in, in building the Soviet state. I want to go back to the first point uh, that you raised there before we return to the second. Um, you mentioned this kind of Hobbesian collapse narrative, yeah. wherein all of the you know legitimacy and the institutions that people rely on for their daily lives, uh, their, their daily lives had collapsed, and uh, this really conditioned their consciousness, their their needs, their desires, and the trajectory of of, of what was able to happen. Um, there are a lot of interesting ways to think about the Bolsheviks as sort of preconditioned, predisposed in terms of you know the way that they had interacted with the Tsarist government and the, the way they sort of developed their Marxism. They were predisposed to succeeding to, to, in, in this kind of uh, social collapse that ensued in 1917. And, and I think that's really important to bring that out. It's unavoidable. This book that you just raised, uh, looking at the popular histories, the the mob justice, the pleas for order, the uh, the death, the you know social dislocation, alienation that happened in that time. I mean, it couldn't have been a nice time to come up in. I think a lot of us <laughs> sort of. I mean, we we want to romanticize it, but I'm not sure many of us would have survived. Yeah, um, it's hard to romanticize from the grave. But that Hobbesian collapse narrative seems to only have conservative trajectories. Right. And when I have when I have previous guests on this show, I'm really working towards some kind of uh, political, uh, you know, theoretical synthesis here on this show. And, and I sort of, you know, it, it proceeds and fits and starts. And I've had some guests on who have sort of appealed to this, this, this sort of, I don't know, it's a, it's an inconvenient necessity. Uh, for some kind of social order that mm-hmm. leftists have a have a difficult myself included ha, we have a difficult time uh, grappling with that necessity for order and right. we take it for granted that social order will always be present and in, in many instances throughout history it has not been present many instances across the world right now as we speak the, a modicum of social order cannot be said to be present uh, so, so how do you look at these? How do you how do you look at nineteen seven as this Hobbesian collapse narrative and avoid these conservative uh, trajectories? I mean, this is a really good question, and I'm glad you raised it because it's something else that I've been thinking about too, and and, and thinking about uh, that the collapse of that social order, and and basically it becomes a convenient way to say, you know, look, revolution brings disaster in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm, and right. and that pretty much undercuts <laughs> any kind of, you know, leftist leftism, let's say, in the broadest sense. Um, but it's something that one has to account for. And it's something that one has to, in it, particularly in that period of 1917, that the left in Russia, you know, and here I'm speaking broad, the broad left had to organize for, you know, the fact that it allows, I think, the, to get around that conservative moment, or that conservative um, uh, conclusion is to say that the collapse of that social order allows for a space for people to organize themselves to create a new social order. So we have a discourse here in the United States about community policing. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want in a revolutionary situation, if you believe in community policing, then it's the community that has to organize. Now, you know, not communities are very tricky things because they could also organize against, you know, others, right? Oh, <laughs> they don't they don't always go in nice ways. But nonetheless, 
you know, if if those on the left, including myself, valorize the the energies and politics of lower class people, then we have to somehow, you know, think about how to organize with them and their communities in these situations. Um, this is why you get militias. This is why you get the self-organization of soldiers in 1917. This is why you get the Soviet. The Soviet itself is a mechanism of social organization to fill the va power vacuum caused by the, the abdication of Nicholas II. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think to get around this you know, to say that the, the social order has imploded doesn't mean that the answer is necessarily some sort of, you know, harsh police state. Um, it, but it's to say that it opens up space where revolutionary forces can begin to think about the reorganization of society. And that's essentially what was going on in Russia at the time. I think we can zero in on this dilemma of social order and you know this historical moment in terms of bringing out uh, the the realism the accuracy of that moment without covering over the barbarism and some of the traps the successes the failures we can bring that out by talking about a topic that you have researched quite deeply it was the topic of your dissertation and that is the komsomol the komsomol the young communists in russia it uh, it has it it cross cuts the topic crosscuts a lot of, of, of different areas, you know, whether it's pre-revolution, obviously, you know, these were the, as you have written and others have written elsewhere, these were the foot soldiers of the civil war in many instances. Yeah. They were the young uh, military aged, uh, you know, rifle bearing Bolsheviks, uh, proto whatever Bolsheviks uh, in some, in some many instances who, who fought the white army and, and won freedom for their country and uh and and of course they became very instrumental after the revolution mm -hmm. and 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 decades and decades later they're still incredibly instrumental in managing the russian state and society so let's start at the beginning what was the komsomol and how did it come about who comprised the the cadres of this organization sure so the young communist league uh came was formed in in October October 29th 1918 um out of two organizations a one in St Petersburg called Labor and Light and the other in Moscow called the Third International um actually there might be a second and a more radical one in St Petersburg but now I'm the, the name is escaping me but uh I haven't looked at this stuff in a long time um and but essentially what it what it was is that in the revolutionary movement um in, in all left political parties in particular, they had a space for for energizing young people as as you know political force and recognizing that young people, particularly those entering in industry, had certain interests and and rights um, and roles for participation uh, so young people uh, were very active in the revolutionary movement in Russia throughout I mean from the 1860s on it's a mostly a youth movement if you look at say you know the people's will the terrorist organization that assassinated Alexander II in 1881 I mean it, these people are college students for the most part uh, so youth youth has played a very important role in, in revolutionary movements in the late and late 19th and early 20th century and the young communist league was a way to provide an institution for these revolu young revolutionaries um, to, to act as first a way to develop 
say, young socialists or young communists, but also to function as a mechanism for the party and the state. So it's basically an attempt in the early days to institutionalize uh, a lot of of young activists under one general umbrella. Um, And then also to facilitate, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of these young people, the first generation, a lot of them fought in the Civil War and died in the Civil War, um, to be able to deploy these young people across the country in various military fronts and various other forms of, you know, social and political activism. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, there are a tremendous amount of parallels uh, between the young communists and the socialist and communist movements that would follow them in the Western world, whether it be the new left, uh, whether it be today's left in the Bernie wave. And without sort of denigrating the historical, um, you know, the historical integrity of of those events by by you know muddying the waters in these sort of direct comparisons. Talk to us a little bit about how this group formed and how it mirrors a, a lot of other revolutionary movements mm. across time and space. I mean, I, I think one of the, the the real the I mean, revolutions are oftentimes seen as you know provoked and led by these aged. <laughs> wise or evil theoreticians who sort of right. sit behind uh, in their in their cushy office chairs uh, once the leading authority, prevailing authority, has been overthrown. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it's the kids in the streets, right? Yeah, the go- that are organizing the factories, that are leading the armies, that are holding the weapons, that are bleeding and dying in the streets. And um, I think we too often lose sight of the fact that, for better or for worse, revolutionary <laughs> revolutions are made by the young. Yes. And so when we talk about the Komsomol, this isn't just some kind of niche interest within the revolutionary moment in Russia. This is the backbone of not only this revolution, but all revolutions. Yeah. And I think there's a general structure that occurs within the Komsomol that we can identify uh, at least in – you know, in in form, in vague form, throughout many uh, ebbs and flows of revolutionary sentiment and activity and organization in the past 101 years leading up to the present. And so tell us a little bit about those social dynamics. Who comprised the cadres of the Komsomol? What was their day-to-day life like? Well, this this I mean, I think the first thing that to speak about is that what makes, say, an organization like the Young Communist League different than other uh, revolutionary movements is that the Komsomol formed after taking power, right? So they're in a situation in which they're trying to build uh, or at least participate in the construction of a socialist society and a socialist state. Uh, so the conditions are, are, I think, are important. But what's really striking to me about that is that also um, a lot of similar things seem to happen. So the first generation of the Komsomol, uh, that the first leaders – uh, that that came up through the ranks, mostly in the 1920s, uh, they were born around the turn of the century. So they're around 19, 1898 to about 1905. So they already grew up in a Russia that was under a lot of political and social stress. Uh, you know, the, the revolutionary movement in pre-revolutionary Russia was incredibly violent. Um, then, of course, World War I, a lot of these kids live through this violence. I mean, just to speak about youth in general, after 1922, after the end of the Civil War, there is about 12 million homeless children 
in the new Soviet in Soviet society. So yeah, it, it's the the the, the social uh, you know catastrophe is is and the demographic catastrophe is is quite striking. Um, so these this first generation comes up and they're reared. They're, the, the revolution for them isn't necessarily 1917. I mean, this is one of the other mis- the kind of mistakes that we make when looking at this is that for these people they mostly get involved in the civil war that the civil war allows for the influx of masses amount of people both into the bolshevik party and into the komsomol i mean just to give you an example for the bolshevik side in 19 in february 1917 the bolshevik party has about 22,000 members by october 1917 it has 70,000 by 1922 it has 700,000 now think about that that first 22,000 are completely overwhelmed by all of these new recruits. And most of these new recruits into these political organizations are reared in the Civil War. And they have a mentality of destruction. They have a mentality of destroying the state. They have a mentality of you know going after the enemy. After the Civil War ends, uh, Lenin makes a really important speech in 1921 at the Third Komsomol Congress, where he says, the task of young communists today is to learn communism. And this sends shockwaves because until this point, they were building communism through the barrel of a gun. And now they're being told to go study. (laughs) And it it causes, it causes an identity crisis. Uh, I see. So, because it, it now means that instead of destroying the state, you have to build the state, you have to build society. So amongst the end, the young communist league is growing really rapidly. So in 1922, it has about 400,000 members. By 1925, it has a million. By 1928, it has 2 million. And all of these new people are coming in who don't know anything about Marx, Lenin, communism, the revolution even, or anything. And the anxiety is we're losing our purity. um, And there's lots of hand-wringing over what does it mean to be a young communist? Because nobody has there's it's not like there's a law or even a, a a scripture that one can look to and say a communist behaves this way that way and the other way, and so what's really interesting about uh, the 1920s and the first ten years of this political young communist league is that a lot of discussions are being held about sex, about dress, about I mean really mundane things like do you shake hands, huh. do you wash your hands. Yeah. Do you, you know, what type of, do girls, should girls wear makeup? Should girls smoke? Should they wear leather jackets? And so you get this, this hardcore first generation and it's symbolized by this image of what's called the fighting comsomol, which is this leather jacket wearing both boys and girls, you know, pistol waving fanatic. And they're getting jack boots, jack and, uh, boots you know. the whole thing. This is that for them, this is what to be a communist, this is what it means, right? And then you get all of these like just regular young people who, whatever, who are joining for a variety of reasons who aren't that. And so there's a sense that our ideological purity is being watered down. Mm-hmm. Now, can I ask, I mean, as, as the kind of uh, 
the uninitiated uh, person in the room here. I mean, this is just a, a general sort of observation as I was reading through your dissertation and, and you, you generously sent me some of the episodes you did on your podcast where you talked about the Young Communist Leagues across the world. And uh, I'll, I'll try to link to those in the show notes for people to listen to because they should really uh, dive in there and get some much more fine-grained detail about the history and the culture of, of these organizations. But as I'm, I'm as I'm leafing through these this stuff over the past couple of days, I can't help but to think about this transition, this generational transition. You're talking about how Komsomol, the Komsomol, the Young Communist League was wrapped up in these uh, questions of identity. What does it mean to be a young communist, to be a communist? And it seems like, you know, so why, why was this, why were these such hot button topics? And it seems to me that in the midst of, a, of the Civil War, mm-hmm. your identity was pretty fucking important. <laughs> it was the difference between, you know, whether you lived or died. Yeah. Whether you were imprisoned or not, whether you lost your house and your belongings, whether they were confiscated or not, mm-hmm. uh, identity in the midst of a civil war, uh, you know, be it po- a political or certainly a modern day ethnic civil war, your identity is everything. Yes. Uh, it's forged in conflict. And it seems to me that once the civil war is more or less settled, um, this this obsession with identity as being forged in conflict and having to make these differentiations is sort of uh, sublimated, to use a jargony word, is just sort of a, it's transformed into the uh, the kind of more banal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, less dire life or death kind of situations that they found themselves in in in, in relatively organized, institutionalized society. Am I on to something there? Is that is this a kind of um, misplaced urgency that the second generation of the Komsomol uh, takes on in terms of trying to differentiate themselves? Yeah, uh, as communists, uh, but from 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 communists to, to others, because you know that was not a it was not a it was not a monolithic society by any stretch of the imagination or organization. Yeah, no, I I actually um in in another life I in turning this dissertation into a book I was going to focus on the traumatic aspects of this, the fact that to speak about it in terms of of a kind of social social trauma, in the sense that. If you uh, and, and in some cases you have real manifestations of this in terms of a lot of um, you know in the in the Komsomol archive there are letters from these old Komsomolci they're called uh, suicide letters they they're talking about you know committing suicide they're talking about how they fought for nothing what did they spill their blood for all of these new you know come you know Johnny come latelys or whatever into this young communist league where were they. Like, where were they when I was lying in a trench? And so, yeah, I, I think you're, I mean, you know, you basically either read very closely or we're on the same wavelength. And, and that is, it is a very, I would say it's a very uh, displaced, this, this obsession with what does it mean to be a, a communist or a young communist is a form of displacement of trying to fight those battles uh, or maintain that identity, maintain that purity um, in the it's a it's an identity crisis. It is a period of, of intense anxiety, and, and not just in the Young Communist League. You can find the same things in in the Bolshevik Party uh, in the 1920s in general. There's you know historians have written a lot about this. It's a generally anxious time because the transition. I mean, this is my view: the transition to a society to construct a society 
Uh, not to mention the general political retreat that the Bolsheviks are forced to take with the new economic policy um, brings up a, a lot of questions of, okay, we just went through this cataclysmic period, and for what? And the irony is that for a lot of these young people, and even the ones that join in the late 20s, it's Stalinism that provides them their revolutionary experience. It's collectivization that provides them with that experience that they've heard about and read about about 1917 and the Civil War uh, that that gives them that revolution that they've been, you know, kind of reared on its its myths. Right. So you've written elsewhere. Uh, this is a great, a great, tra- not a transition, but to, to develop the argument further. You've written elsewhere that, you know, one one way to look at this history that's essential is that we need to understand that the sort of uh, the generations and sub generations of the of the young communists and having youth as a lens is a very useful one because you know they, you know as as we get older we all sort of uh, find ourselves in, in horror in, in some morning we look at ourselves in the mirror or we or we hear a we hear some slang that we don't know what it means <laughs> or something and, and to our horror we discover we're not young anymore right. Uh, <laughs> we're not young and we're definitely not cool anymore. That's the thing about youth. Uh, it, it keeps cycling uh, no matter what, uh, with or without you. And uh, so the second generation that you uh, are, are referring to here has to develop a certain kind of a founding mythos, mm-hmm. uh, mythology, the story about itself and it how it sort of uh, cut its teeth and how it sort of earned and deserved its its spot in in history as as a generation and so this experience of stalinism gave them an opportunity to do that to to develop a certain kind of narrative that could potentially rival the suffering and the sacrifice of the the uh, first generation types who fought in the civil war so how did stalinism provide the second generation of young communists the opportunity to sort of uh, earn some bona fides in this process? (laughs) Um, Well, one of the first things that it did that occurred was 1927, of course, is the 10th anniversary of the October Revolution, which there's a lot of preparation and and celebration for. The Sergei Eisenstein's movie October was made specifically for that commemoration. But more importantly is 1928, which for the Young Communist League is the 10th anniversary of the Komsomol, but also is the anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War. And here you have the construction of a memory project for those first veterans who fought in the Civil War. You get like these you know, necrologies made, you have these historical projects, you have memoirs being written. And at the same time, you're getting a lot of the, the rhetoric of the early Stalinist regime and its mobilization of the masses framed in almost like a civil war reenactment. So the language itself takes on a language of militarism, of fronts, of storming, of, you know, in the Komsomol, they create all of these little organizations and movements like the light cavalry which are essentially young people going into a factory and looking at the accounting books. A lot of their activities are actually mu- quite mundane, but they have this air of kind of the cultural army, which goes out to the villages to essentially turn, teach people how to read <laughs> and brush uh, their teeth. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know. But there's all of these kind of mass mobilizations. And then, of course, there's the general like you know 
young communists and workers and other communist party members are being sent out to the countryside to collectivize agriculture, which is an incredibly violent affair. I mean, you know, the historian Lynn Viola, who's one of the top experts on on the collectivization, you know, just rightly describes it as a civil war. Um, so in many respects, in, in both in rhetoric and reality, it is a civil war. And the way – and both in, in terms of participating in collectivization but also in industrialization, also in participating of the purging out of the former elites out of universities. I mean imagine you know, students being able to denounce the professor. <laughs> for being for being you know a bourgeois whatever right, <laughs> yeah, um, right. I, it provides I think the the it provides the outlet for a lot of those frustrations that are brewing in the mid twenties that are being being spoken about in terms of like you know how should a young communist dress they're being now they're being articulated in actual action and particip and mass participation that a lot of young communists who are coming into the Komsomol in the mid 20s are saying what is this i don't want to sit around and read like the ones who were you know committed politically they want to do something they want to go in they want to smash the class enemy and the early stalinist regime collectivization industrialization the first five year plan provides a lot of these young people that outlet i mean imagine being sent to a village at 19 years old and told to expropriate, you know, the property of villagers, you know, and the political mandate you have. And and that's not even to, to speak about the fact that in the early Bolshevik state in the 1920s, the Komsomol in most places around the country was the face of the Soviet state. There weren't any Bolsheviks anywhere. Some of these young people are running local institutions and are really the only, like, you know, for most people in the countryside, the only representation of this regime. Right. So let's talk about some of the concrete stories about uh, uh, Komsomol members, of, of what, what kind of, you know, um, activities they, they took part in. You mentioned going out into the countryside and teaching the peasants how to brush their teeth. <laughs> yeah. um, let's go into a little bit more about how, because I think there are a lot of parallels here uh, between the kind of um, this hyper attention to organizing and going out amongst the people and the way that that can be sometimes romanticized. Now, I'm, you know, we're all socialists. We're all leftists. We believe in the self, self-emancipation of the working class and the masses, and it's important to orient towards them. But you can see how this second generation of the Young Communist League in Russia really kind of set the stage for, say, the seeding movement where where workers in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. would, uh, after graduating from Princeton or something like that, would go out and work in a factory, take on a union job to try to radicalize uh, that, that uh, production site. And there, there's a lot of talk uh, today about going out among the people, about <laughs> how to orient to the masses. And the second generation of the Komsomol uh, really did that. So let's talk about that before we talk, uh, we get into in the second half of this discussion uh, about some of the downsides and the more kind of reactionary elements and the punitive nature of the Komsomol that emerged. Let's talk about the good the good things, the good uh, things. Before, before we talk about <laughs> what, uh, some of the bad. Right. Well, this is, I mean, what they were, what they just were doing in, in the 19, they started really in the mid 1920s. Uh, it's, is uh, taking up something that the revolutionary movement in Russia tried in the 1860s. And that is this movement of going to the people, 
which was essentially a lot of uh, revolutionaries were quite, a, you know, in the 1860s were kind of disgruntled. So they said, okay, let's go organize the masses. And they went to the countryside and, 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 Basically, um, you know, you can you can swear. I've heard you swear on this podcast. Basically, they went to the the, the countryside and the peasants told them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> like yeah. you're outsiders. We don't want anything to do with you. Right. You're right, aliens. Right, right. Uh, and they became disgruntled. And actually, this is one of the uh, the reasons why this first generation, this early generation of Russian revolutionaries turned to terrorism out of the frustration that the the, the masses are just too backward. They they try this, you know, they do this now in the 1920s as a way to, of course, build communism, right, to build socialism, because and it's very much a, a, a project of modernity. It's a project of conversion in many respects of mm-hmm. going to teach the backward peasants how to live a better life, how to be hygienic, how to to be literate. Um, and right. of course, with the first five year plan, there's a major push for literacy. Um, so in many res- – and the, these cultural armies that go to the countryside, they go to villages and they do – I mean they teach people how to read. They fix like barns. They uh, you know, do some musical or, or um, artistic performances. Uh, they help out with the harvest in some cases. And then they move on to the next one, right? It's a very like rapid – you know they're spending a couple of days and they and then they move off to the next village. So you know there is a um, the, the, this early Soviet regime, whether it's before Stalin or during Stalin, has a very strong um, part- participatory aspect of people going out and participating in the construction of socialism. And and one of the things that's inter- important to remember is that when you're sending these young people or anyone out to the countryside, let's say, how they're constructing socialism is according to how they think socialism should be constructed. <laughs> so, you know, there is no ideological uniformity. And what's really interesting even about the, the Komsomol's, you know, central directives about going about and doing this is that they don't really have many rules and guidelines, um, they just kind of say, okay, cultural campaign, the slogan is to fight illiteracy, dirt, and um, depravity. <laughs> so, you know, so they're doing anti-alcohol campaigns. They're doing this stuff about sex. They're doing stuff about, you know, the abuse of girls and women and uh, anti against anti-Semitism and, and other things as well and trying to promote this kind of socialist uh, ethos. Right. So there are a lot of a lot of parallels with our, our present moment, I would say. There are a lot of things in there that the Komsomol uh, members, these these, uh, you know, organizational bodies that crop up to try to regulate the behavior and the act, actions of their members. Uh, we can even move on now to these kind of uh, kangaroo courts, these show trials, these early versions of show trials that are happening, you know, a decade or more before the actual uh, what we call now the Stalinist terror and the show trials that occurred there, um, sort of setting the stage for that moment. Um, but what you see now is that you mentioned there was an identity crisis in the 20s in Russia, rev- post-revolutionary Russia. And identity crisis uh, oftentimes, you know, or maybe nearly every time coincides with this kind of moral panic. Yeah. And moral panics are always very confusing because a lot of the things you listed there are noble causes. No, you should you should not harass women. You should not certainly sexually assault women. You should not 
um, you know, treat others poorly or, or, or you should live your life with um, integrity, like just very basic kind yeah. of guidelines to about be a good how, comrade. You, mm-hmm. how you work with others in social settings in order to, to maintain uh, the longevity and the, the functioning of that particular institution. These are necessary tasks for anyone who has run an organization, no matter, no matter the size. But tell us a little bit about – this is where we're really getting into your work here. And I think you, you, you talk about this very, very uh, eloquently in your dissertation. And uh, you know, I, I, always, I always encourage my listeners to read these dissertations. And I think dissertations need a bad rap. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them are not so good. <laughs> uh, but 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 I think there are a lot of really great ones out there. You, it seems you took a lot of care with the writing and the and the pr- the preparation, the presentation. Well, thank you of your dissertation, and particularly the section where you talk about the development of identity through these trials and 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 conflicts inside of the consumal, talking about consumal ethics. And and you write very. I really like the way that you talk about the fact that you know there were a lot of expulsions during this time. There were a lot of disciplinary proceedings, and 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 you write very interestingly, saying you know that in essence the expelled Komsomol never is never never quite leaves the Komsomol because that that expelled uh, you know former comrade then becomes the limit, the yeah. boundary of what is or is not acceptable among current members of the Komsomol. And so you can see that now about how the the left is, don't I know it all too well, my friend. <laughs> Sean, 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 don't I know. The left is a hothouse. And yep. there are there, there's a lot of uh, negativity mm-hmm. and toxicity and vitriol that gets thrown around the left today. And uh, this is a really interesting case study wherein we can see that these desires to expel and expunge and excommunicate are part of these day-to-day processes to define what it means to be a young communist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, fill in some of those uh, – narrate that process for us. How do we get to this kind of heroic comsomol, these comrades, these cigarette smokers, jackboot, leather leather jacket? They seem – they sound pretty fucking cool, don't they? Like, <laughs> you know, I wish I was that cool I'll when I was – you some know, pictures. <laughs> when I was 17, you know, I was, you know uh, – anyway, uh, talk about romanticism. But how do we get from that? That to these kangaroo courts that right. crop up for for ethical violations and drinking and such. So you know, as I spoke earlier, the Kumsum, the first generation of Kumsum was a very small group, and the organization grows incredibly rapidly. Right? I mean, they really open, especially once Lenin dies in 1924. There's something called the Lenin Levy. Both the, the party and the Kumsum open its floodgates to basically allow anyone, if you're a peasant or worker, you're in if you want to join. There's all of the various restrictions that were in place before are kind of put aside, and there's a flood of new people. So the organization is growing really, really rapidly, and you're getting all sorts of people who, you know, they're not, they're just regular people, right? And they join for a variety of reasons. And But the thing is, is that in the organization itself, it doesn't have laws to to say or rules as to what does it mean to be a good member of the Komsomol, a good Komsomol member. Um, And as all of these new people are coming in, there's more and more anxiety. I mean, I spoke about this in terms of this obsession about what does it mean to be young communist. Quickly, the answer to this, and, and they refuse to lay down a law. They refuse to give a code of conduct. 
Uh, partially, it's because they don't want to really exclude lots of people, uh, but also because they, they're still working from this ethos that the code of conduct should be decided on the local level. Right, the newspapers provide certain guidelines, but they don't really provide any concrete ways of a of a law. So what they create is they create a juridical structure uh, called the Conflict Commission. In the party, it's called the the Control Commission. And essentially, what the Conflict Commission does, it's created in 1925. It's to adjudicate conflicts within. The or, within organi- within local organizations. So, for example, if you have a member who drinks too much, if you have a member who harasses people, if you have just criminals and corrupt people, this body, which is on the cell level, uh, there's a committee, and it's essentially a court. And the court is supposed to decide through the participation of the community, the cell, if this person is a good member or a bad member. And so my argument is, is that the law, the Komsomol law, is created through this process of adjudication. Because so, you know, they don't want to say, let's take an example of drinking. They want, don't, the Komsomol doesn't want to say, don't drink, because then they'll just lose too many people. Nobody will want to join. And then they don't want to say, well, then, but they also want to say, well, don't drink too much. And so the question is, what are the parameters of acceptable behavior? And through the reprimanding, the adjudication, and the expulsion of members, do you get the parameter set? So through the, and at the trial itself, because it involves, you know, participation from members, it's, it's also about teaching members of the organization what the proper conduct is, right? It's this very subjective, ah. subjectivizing experience. Where you're like, and then you have people who testify and you have people who, you know, write, you know, recommendations or defense. And by kicking someone out, like, you know, you, Adam, if you drink too much, right, you're drinking every day, you're coming to meetings drunk. You know, we're not Puritans here. We don't live in a monastery. But, you know, Adam, you're a bit of a problem here. By expelling you, the rest of us get the idea, don't be like Adam. Right. <laughs> Don't be an Adam. Yeah. And then Adam yeah. becomes an avatar yeah. for exactly. what you need to avoid. Yes, right? exactly. Everyone needs to sort of uh, distance themselves mm-hmm. from that Adam. Right. It's a, it's, it becomes a very sort of moralizing thing, which may or may not have originated from a, a reasonable a reasonable concern. So, I mean, I think that one of the things that's, I think it's interesting here that I would like to discuss in closing here is, is, is one, one of the things that we really need to look out for, I think, in our current movements today. But, you know, it seems to me this is all highly speculative and it's stuff that you would have to go into the archives and look at the kind of um, the way that the leadership sort of uh, unfolded throughout the, the years and the decades. But it seems to me that this unwillingness to specifically enumerate the the rules and the laws and the regulations and the ethical codes to say exactly how drunk is too drunk Mm-hmm. It, it comes from uh, this this desire among among the leadership, I would presume, of preserving this kind of gray area. Yeah, because gray area uh, it enables maneuvering, you know, maneuvering for power. Uh, it, it it becomes a sort of kind of uh, football that you can sort of pass around and and carry uh, in order to wield 
you know, power in, in institutional, social, organizational settings. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that the, the quote, justice that was meted out was, was probably pretty selective. Um, I would presume that certain people were able to get drunk, whereas other people were not. Absolutely. And, and how that comes about has much more to do with the power intersocial dynamics. And I think these are the things that we really need to think very seriously about on the left. And that when we start hyper-politicizing and moralizing, we lose the kind of day-to-day cliquish uh, interpersonal power relations that occur in, in all social settings. Mm-hmm. Um, am I right on there? Am I, am I overly suspicious? Does my personal baggage uh, <laughs> cloud my historical vision? <laughs> How no, does that play out? No, because, because absolutely, you know, you have certain cliques within organizations that start to staff these committees. You have denunciations, of course. You have, uh, you know, basically you then you get once the the rhetoric begins to change, you also get the weeding out of undesirable class elements, undesirable political positions. I mean, this is how they get rid of Trotskyists, for example. Now, the question, of course, is, well, what is a Trotskyist? Well, Trotskyist is the guy that's against us. <laughs> right? This is my favorite story. Tell, tell, tell the story about how Trotskyism just becomes a kind of general abstract it, epithet to it, use against degenerates for all types of it, reasons. It becomes like – so I, I, I have a good story that my, my professor Arch Getty told me. He's an expert on – he's one of the top experts on the terror. And he, uh-huh. he told me one point that um, he was somewhere – some some small town in Russia, and he started talking to some old person who was alive at the time in the 1930s, and he was like, you know, so uh, so what were there any Trotskyists here? And, and this woman answered him. She said, well, you know, I don't know about any Trotskyists, but we had these people that we didn't like, and they just kind of didn't fit in. So when the time came, they were the Trotskyists. <laughs> <laughs> so the political content. You know, it's not a, it's not exactly, and, and all of these things aren't exactly politically um, principled fights. Tr- the the political labels get interwoven with personal relationships. Uh, isn't that fascinating? Um, and isn't that and fascinating? it becomes, you know, it becomes a point where in the 1920s, where and I can speak a lot of also about the party, where the central party apparatus is getting flooded with all of these conflicts. And complaints, you know, on the one hand, they're expelling people. On their hand, they're breaking them up and sending them to other parts of the country. Uh, they are doing all sorts of mechanisms to – to, and they have a lot of corruption as well. And so, and, uh, you know, in any kind of community, right, this is why I like the framework of community, the rules are, are established, the norms of behavior, the ethics – are established by that community in their interactions with each other. And inevitably, these communities break down in, in factions and in cliques. And there's even a, mm-hmm. a, a discourse in the 1920s amongst the Komsomol about the difference between friendship and comradeship. Um, uh, that's still that's still a hot button topic amongst <laughs> a lot of uh, Marxist sects. Yeah, and, and friendship uh, – In the United States they, and elsewhere. They speak about friendship as friendship – leads to cliques, which leads to factionalism. Whereas comradeship <laughs> is, I, you are my comrade. So we look out for that. So the other part of this juridical part of, of you know, disciplining ethics is if you see a comrade in trouble, like let's go back to our example of you, Adam the drunk, it's our, as comrades, <laughs> we shouldn't adjudicate you 
as the first move, we should go to you as comrades and say, Adam, uh, we are comrades. Yeah, Let's yeah, help yeah. you out. You should concern troll the shit out of me. Yeah, right? you, yeah, you don't, you don't. I'm starting to wonder, did you know me in my early 20s? <laughs> they, you don't, you don't. In, in the rhetoric of the time, they have two things they say. They have, don't let your comrades fall into a hole. And don't preach the idea that that's not in my hut, so it's not my business. So a lot ah, of this, the sexual, so see, it's a see something, say something. It's see something, kind of say of something. Just, so like, there's a yeah. famous case that I talk about around the rape of this this young woman, and the 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 argument of the guy who they they say, well, sex stuff is is my personal business, and the constable says, no, 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 no. Your sexual behavior affects the community. Therefore, we should we shouldn't turn a blind eye if we see you know a young woman being abused. We should intervene. Right, right. Uh, so it, it there's a kind of there's a really fine line here between on the one hand this adjudication of moral of of ethical behavior, which is you know problematic for many of the reasons I've talked about, but at the same time there is an effort to create a more tight knit understanding supportive community <laughs> uh, yeah, and yeah. and this is this is the the problem that they they deal with in the in the late the mid to late 1920s and trying to figure out okay what is the proper behavior of a young communist and you can see how it quickly can go off the rails in a society like you know post-revolutionary russia where there's there's this is rife with social conflict this is really fascinating this parallels a lot of the uh the episodes that I've done in the past, uh, talking about the kind of the difficulty of sort of uh, litigating proper behavior in, in law, right? You know, so it's it's one thing to sort of joke about Adam the drunk, you know, and, and how his comrades need to call him in, you know, on his drinking or whatever. Hey, don't show up to meetings with a bottle of vodka in your pocket or whatever. Fine. Uh, it's another thing to talk, uh, you know, in jest about like the the story you just told there about like say perhaps uh, you know whether it be like domestic abuse mm -hmm. or or sexual assault or what have you. Like those are very serious things, and you know how how to how to uh, litigate one without collapsing the entirety of society and this sort of moral panic wherein we where again we collapse uh, offenses uh, that are very different in terms of outcomes and consequences, mm -hmm. I would say, uh, such as whether or not we should shake hands versus outright sexual <laughs> assault or interpersonal violence. Right. It becomes a problem. The way we see the way in which law and society and politics become inflated, I think this is this also harkens back to we're getting towards the end of the interview. We've got to we've got to close here, so maybe this is a this is a hot potato to introduce at this point. But we're getting into the conversation that I had with Ed Rooksby about the way in which the early Russian post immediate post revolutionary government sort of constituted a certain kind of um, political conformity at the base of their state you know, apparatus mm -hmm. such that, uh, you know, party membership and the coherence and the longevity and the preservation of the party was above any kind of perceived um, independence uh, or um, what we might now call separation of powers right. in, in the Western, uh, you know, liberal constitutional context. And you see this kind of emerging in the same way where, where, um, you know, friendship 
uh, as we understand it, would not have been something that they would ever advocate for. Because again, yeah, sure, you want to you want to make other people's uh, business your business. You want to look out for them, but at the moment, it becomes politically or socially advantageous to denounce that person. Um, not much of a friend anymore. You know? <laughs> yeah, not much of a friend anymore. And if you go down, and, and if you if you decide to stay loyal to your friend who's been denounced. Well, you know, you'll be you'll be denounced as well. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's 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 there's a real ugly side to this that uh, that you know I'm not really sure what to do with it, and I'm not sure that we're going to have any answers today. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to tell the listeners. No. But it's something that I think that we need to we need to maintain a constant awareness of and attunement to as we try to navigate these choppy waters of of socialism for the 21st century. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let, let's wrap up here. What are some of the primary? Uh, I hate to. I'm, I'm about to use the L word, Sean. Lessons. What are some of the lessons? <laughs> oh, boy, um, of this moment. You know, it's it's the end. We got to. I yeah. have to do one of two things. I have to either. Uh, you know, we have to have a call to the barricades, right. right, as the final question, or we have to draw out these these mealy mouthed lessons. Uh, or maybe tell us why we shouldn't draw easy lessons uh, from this period. Well, I, I'll, I'll go with the easiest one, which is why we shouldn't draw easy lessons. I, I think, you know, one of the things I, I, I should say in terms of particularly around this adjudication stuff of, of ethics is that the, the Bolshevik regime was kind of caught in two modes. It was caught in the mode of building revolution, like a revolutionary regime, revolutionary society, socialist society, and stabilizing a country that went through social cataclysm. Right. So in a way, another way to read all of this ethical adjudication is to try to rein in the excesses of the libertinism that came out of the revolutionary period, whether that libertinism is violence or certain sexual practices, etc. It's a way to try to stabilize a society. Right. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of we shouldn't take a lot of this too far is, is that, you know, we need to be aware of the particular historical conditions the Soviet system is operating under in the 1920s and into the 1930s. Um, you know, that's really important. Nonetheless, I think one of the things we can possibly reflect on is how the tendency to adjudicate is a very slippery slope. Um, and, and, while institutions to deal with conflicts can be a positive thing, they also can quickly delve into mechanisms of repression. Uh, and, and I fear that, you know, in looking around the left today, and this is only heightened with, you know, social media, there is a tendency of adjudication. I mean, even without the institutional structures, right? And, and for me, this, this reflects it reflects to me an identity crisis, uh, particularly at a point where the left is undergoing a certain revival. You're getting a lot more people who are interested, who don't. I mean, I hear this, you know, amongst people in the DSA, like people who don't know about socialism, uh, all of these new people who don't know the codes, they don't know the history, they don't know the language compared to, say, the more hardcore invested types. And so there, I think there, with the rapid growth of an organization like the DSA, I see a certain identity crisis undergoing as well. And it's interesting, too, that that identity crisis is in many ways reflecting the general t tensions, 
the social and cultural tensions that are going on, you know, in American society as a whole. Uh, so I think if anything, being aware of a history that, you know, of course we can't apply one to one, but a certain historical, say, you know, looking back on this and seeing what went on perhaps can, you know, provide at least some reflection, right? <laughs> and, and in terms of how we conduct these things today. Well, this story is incredibly fascinating. If nothing else, it should destabilize our understanding of that historical moment, the ideologies that sort of stem from that period, and the political strategies that that come from from that moment as well. And it too, you know, as, as someone who makes a lot of arguments in a very strident fashion, such you know that I, that I do on this show and elsewhere, you know, I think it should it should humble us a little bit about the about the magnitude of our project, which is something that I, I sort of turn to all the time, yeah. I think, um, you know, in, in, in the context of the kind of left project that I'm a part of is that no one has the answers. And this, this is a, an enormous undertaking that we're trying to attempt here in our moment, in our particular context. And, uh, and it's, it was much even, it was even bigger in many instances in, in the Russian and the Russian context. So, yeah, so much, so much to say. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I'd, lo I'd love to chat with you for eight more yeah, hours yeah. to talk about the history of the Komsomol. We didn't quite get to the show trials or the terror. Oh, yeah, we could do um, that some other time. <laughs> we'll have to do that some other time. But uh, Sean Guillory, host of Sean's Russia Blog podcast. Thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punnett Society. You have to come back yeah. on and uh, talk much more about this in the future. I'd be happy to. I'm not going anywhere. So thanks. <laughs> Thanks again to everybody for listening to today's episode. Big ups to Sean Guillory and Sean's Russia Blog podcast. I've learned an incredible amount from that show when it comes to Russian culture, politics, history, theory. Uh, the whole revolutionary history is absolutely priceless. You get so much depth and richness and detail uh, from that show when it comes to the ins and outs of the pre- and post-Russian revolutionary era. Uh, so everybody check that out and support Sean. He's a solid dude. Coming down the pike later this week, we're going to have another episode with Daniel Marins, Huffington Post writer, journalist, and a guy who's been on the electoral beat for a long time. We're going to be discussing the X's and O's and the outcome and the significance of the midterm elections, all that good shit. And uh, you're not going to hear the entire episode unless you are a patron of the show. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button for $5 or more per month. Additionally, as you're probably all sick of hearing by now, we're asking our listeners to donate one hour's worth of their wage to help keep our operations up and running. And uh, we do this for you and we cannot do it without you. So we rely on the generous support of our patrons to keep us up and running, to keep us thriving and expanding well into the new year and beyond. All right, until later this week, Dead Pundit. Out. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. <laughs> <laughs>